It's good to be with you this morning and good to see your smiling faces. I hope you've been blessed by the time that we spent musical worship, that we drew our attention to the attributes of the Lord that are so important for us to remember as we come together. It's kind of an opportunity for us to, to throw off the dirt of the world, if you will. I kind of look at it that way, even uh, coming up here and playing. It's an opportunity just to worship and to uh, talk to the Lord and to repent and to, to uh, just be grateful for all that He has done for us. And so I hope that was a blessing for you too. We're going to be in our time, uh, the time right before our communion time together in First Timothy. You can turn there if you'd like. If you're new with us, we're glad that you're here on the back of the seat in front of you. There's a little QR code. Let us know that you came. Just scan that with your phone. It'll, it's going to take you to, to uh, interaction where you can tell us how we can be uh, minister to you, how we can pray for you, and maybe ask some questions if you have some. We'd love to do that with you, so make sure you do that. If you've not been with us before, we are uh, exegetical, expository types of teaching, so verse by verse, comparing Scripture with Scripture, and, uh, and that's what we'll do today. We're working our way through the pastoral letters. We've just really got started in these letters, so let's turn to First Timothy chapter 1. And we'll read a little bit and do a little bit of review and then spend some time in First Timothy before we move into our time around the table. We began to look at our passage several weeks ago, and I'd like to read with you a little bit and just kind of remind you of where we've been. Verse 1 of First Timothy 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Verse 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. And we saw that that's, an, that's a typical opening letter for the Near East at Paul's time where you identify yourself as the writer and then identify the recipient and then uh, talk a little bit about that relationship. And we saw Paulie, Paul strongly urge Timothy, his son in the faith, as you just saw just then, to remain on in Ephesus. And, and the overriding purpose was to put the church back on a correct heading. If you've been with us, you've seen that, uh, and as we saw last week, correct doctrine is directly connected to correct action. Paul is very concerned about what's being taught in the church and by whom it's being taught. And knowing how to live and function in the church is a result of sound doctrine being taught from the pulpit. And so this is a serious situation, and we've noted some principles that flow out of the text that help us understand and apply the things that we can see here because what's written here still applies to the church today. And we saw false doctrine, false teachers had come from the outside and risen up amongst those who were in Ephesus where Timothy is now residing. Timothy didn't like, uh, likely didn't want to be there because this isn't an easy task to take on those who are teaching false doctrine. And that was our first principle in discernment and dealing with false teachers. Number one, it isn't easy. It's never easy to discern what's being said. You have to pay attention. It's never easy to discern how it's being lived. You have to watch. And, and it's likely that Timothy was somewhat intimidated. And no doubt found it wouldn't be easy to deal with people who were in the church, who were teaching falsely and had some following. And we saw that there were a number of reasons why that was probably the case. It's still the case today when, when the church is off base. We see from the passage that... Um, these guys were already in some kind of leadership. So Timothy comes in, these guys are kind of firmly in there, embedded in the church. That makes it difficult. They're deceivers, and as we saw, they're empowered by the great deceiver. Any false doctrine, any false teaching is always inspired by the great liar, Satan himself. And then most are very well practiced at it. In other words, they know what words to say to make it appear that they're spiritual. And so 
they come across that way. And then we saw in numerous illustrations, uh, the church back then and today is, uh, generally thinks that all views are equal as long as someone holds them with sincerity. And we're at the minimum, these things are not all that important. Why do we have to parse this whole thing out? And so those things kind of stack up against a person who wants to be able to deal with false teaching. And then when you begin to say, okay, well, the word only means what it means, and, and we're supposed to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a work that doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. When you begin to stand up to things that are false, then you're the, you're the one who's dividing everybody, not those who are really doing it. So Paul says to Timothy, I need you to stay there, and I need your presence there. And Paul, as we have seen, has already started the process with two guys that were there, and he put those out. And it put those guys out for reasons that are stated. And we looked at that in verse 9. And, and then he says, so you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. So I'm going to leave you there, and I'm going to have you do this. I'm going to have you put an end to all that uh, that's going on. Command them, that's the word, to stop teaching other than the truth. It's a very broad command we saw. has a very wide application. Instruct certain men, probably a limited number of people, not to teach strange doctrines. It's a very general term it applies. You don't have the right, we saw this is our second principle. Divergence in teaching from the clear meaning of Scripture is never allowed. You can't just freelance it. You have to stay with sound doctrine and do what it says. And then it says in verse 4, it says, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which as we saw is just gimmicks and, and uh, confusing statements and secret knowledge and discovered special meanings and all those kinds of things are so popular still today. Pay attention, not to pay attention to myths, endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation. But instead, Timothy is told by Paul to identify and put an end to that whole idea that uh, introducing something new to just to tantalize people is good. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, this is not a good thing. The previous command Timothy was instructed to give was that you can't teach whatever you want to teach. You can't just freelance it, and now you can't manufacture something new. Of course, the question is, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with spicing things up? Well, he says this. He says, which gives rise to uh, cause to make happen, if you will, mere speculation. So that's useless questioning, idle disputes, um, arguing for argument's sake, throwing things in there to cause the church to have a reaction. Those kinds of things, Paul says, tell people you're not to do that. Chasing after more and more questions, that's really the way it goes now. Maybe using language, maybe using illustrations, something that's going to provoke the church. Paul says that's not to happen. Perhaps they were shopping, and we saw last time, maybe picking and choosing in Old Testament, forbidding to marry, we're going to see that shortly. We looked ahead and saw that, abstaining from certain foods, secret knowledge, all these kinds of things that are supposedly to make you and prove that you're more spiritual than the next person. Paul says, you know, in chapter 4, there's nothing spiritual about any of that. It's all false. God's word is clear, and the gospel mystery is revealed. It's not hidden, and so you just teach it clearly. And that was the third principle that we saw as we were looking at uh, our principles of discernment that came out of the passage. Number three, it is um, true teaching and faithful teachers won't use gimmicks that include mysteries and special knowledge and provoking kinds of statements which just lend themselves to endless speculation. Uh, that's the sign of a false teacher. And Tim, uh, Paul tells Timothy, we can't have that. Rather, he says, instead of doing that, instead of all those provoking kinds of, 
of statements and useless questioning and um, causing to make happen these kinds of confusing things in the church. Instead, furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. And we saw that word administration is a Greek noun, oikonomos. It's the word used for household manager. It's translated steward. And we saw it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. As Paul is talking to the church and he's talking about himself and those who have pastored in Corinth, he said, let a man regard us in this matter, manner as servants of Christ. Here's our word, stewards of the mysteries of God. And in this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. And so the idea there is, is there's a certain job that those who lead the church are supposed to do and they're supposed to be faithful at it. It won't include gimmicks. It won't include spicing things up. It's not going to include freelancing a passage of scripture and saying whatever you want to say. It's going to have certain structure to it. And Paul says it's required for those who are stewards that they be found faithful. And, and very clearly, I think that... Um, stewardship that's supposed to be carried out in the pulpit is a trust. And I think that that's fairly clear from this passage. Uh, trust from God's calling to the one who's called to do it. And that was our fourth principle of discernment as we looked at that. Um, from the negative side that floats so clearly out of the passage, false teaching will short-circuit the main thing that the church is supposed to do, and in particular, the main thing stewards of the church are supposed to do. So, as we've said, the ultimate tragedy of false doctrine from false teachers is that God's work by faith, then, as Paul says here in the letter, is not promoted. And it may not seem that big a deal, but it, what happens is the off from the direction you're supposed to go and the emphasis that you're supposed to have. And the stewardship of grace from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 2, uh, Paul says, If indeed you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you. Paul says there's a stewardship, there's a responsibility an administration of some information that was given to me that I'm supposed to give to you. It's clear, and it's a mystery that's been revealed, and now I'm supposed to make sure you understand it. There's supposed to be a focus to Paul's ministry, a responsibility to manage, if you will, to administrate as a house manager the ministry of grace. And later he says it this way, the stewardship of the mystery revealed from Ephesians 3, 9, and 10 to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery. In other words, in a mystery in the New Testament, as you know this, is something that was hidden, but now revealed. Uh, Christ and all that was going to be accomplished used to be hidden, but now it's clear. And Paul says, my job is to make sure that you understand all of this. And it's been ages hidden in God who created all things. So here's the thing. The church, and especially its leaders, have been given the responsibility, and again, our word, the stewardship, of administering or managing the truth that salvation and Christian living are by faith. And, and this is the most important thing that they can do. I mean, you can make the argument that it is the main job of faithful ministers to do these things. And Timothy has been left here by Paul to correct the trend going on in, in Ephesus of a few in the leadership who are obscuring and misdirecting the faithful discharge of God's administration of these truths by faith. And they dress it up, and we saw other passages that say they adulterate it, they handle it in a crafty way, uh, they're speculating uh, trying to produce in the people confusion and endless speculation and, and gimmicks and immersing themselves in things that don't matter. Paul tells Timothy, tell them, command them to stop all those kinds of things. And, and that prevented the conduct and, and the church order which would promote the by-faith gospel. And that is when we looked at the, the introduction to this letter, we saw in uh, chapter 3, verse 15, that the express stated purpose of the letter to Timothy is, quote, to teach the proper conduct of God's household, which is the church. So what's the reason for the letter? To make sure that we know how we're supposed to act in the church, what we're supposed to do, 
how it's supposed to be formed. It's not op- optional for the guy who leads to just kind of pick and choose what the church is supposed to be like and what they're supposed to do in the services. That's structured. You can't just freelance that. And, and so these are the things that make um, this so onious to Paul and, and so hard for Timothy because this is going on and people are embedded already and they've been doing it for a while and now Timothy's got to weed all of this out. That's always a difficult thing to do. And for Paul, everything rides on the conduct and administration, the oikonomia of God's household, the oikos of the church. Everything rides on that. And if the leaders are doing what they should do, uh, teaching faithful doctrine, the church will be equipped to do what it's supposed to do. Now, Paul's been carried along by the Holy Spirit to begin to address some of those things that are not to be done, and giving Timothy some very general but very, uh, very all-encompassing commands and have a great application. And then he switches gears, and we get to verse 5. And, he, and, and temporarily, he gives some of the goals of proper teaching, so we understand what's not to be done, and then kind of how Paul thinks. He wants, just in case you're unsure what should be done, and of course, some don't even know there because they've been doing this so long, and some of those in the congregation don't know what should be done because that's all they've been hearing. In verse 5, he says this. Look there, if you would, with me. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Let's stop right there. So if the Ephesian elders, led by Timothy now, put a stop to the teaching and false doctrine and return to sound doctrine, then these things will be the outcome. You see this? It's a very important refocus. And here's the first one. What is it? Love from a pure heart. Of course, we understand Jesus said that men would know believers by their love. Would it be because of their big building? No, would it be because they you know, serve on a committee? Um, they send out flyers every now and then to the community? No, they would know we're believers by our love for one another. It's essential then that the church be marked by those who love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love their neighbor as themselves. That's, part, that's our purpose stated in our, on our website. That is the purpose of Berean Baptist Church co- connected with the Great Commission, which is to take the gospel out. And so we understand that this is a very, very important command. And in that command in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, it says, love does no harm to his neighbor, so love is the fulfillment of the law. So if you get right down to it, instead of these false teachers kind of picking and choosing whatever they want to teach and these provocative types of doctrines and manufacturing these things and just cause endless debates and takes the church off topic and off purpose, Paul says, let's see what happens when we make as our purpose sound doctrine, which will be the demonstration of love, which fulfills all the law. Let's just do that. How about that? Let's teach what we're supposed to teach, and then as a result, as an outcome, as a goal for the teaching, people will respond to one another in love. Faithful teaching leads that direction. And so the prevalent characteristic of Christians is that they are marked by love. And we saw the word is the word agape. That is the word of love by choice. That's an action that you do, a love of will, self-denying, self-sacrificing kind of love. It's expressed in verbs. And we studied that last time. We went through 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. And we won't do that again. But the idea is that I live my life for the benefit of you. I live my life for the benefit of God. I live my life for the benefit of the lost. Love is described as doing or not doing certain things. It's not some sentiment. Love is action. Love is kind. Love is generous. Love doesn't hold record of wrong. Those kinds of things. You're expressing love to someone when those attributes are clear in your life. And it wasn't just love, was it? It's love from a pure heart. And we saw that David wrote in Psalm 51.10, Created me a clean heart, O Lord. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Jesus is teaching his disciples, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will what? See God, right. We know when Scripture speaks of the heart, it speaks of the center of a man's belief, of his convictions, of his moral character. The outflow of a man's life, the Scripture says, is from his heart, and so that's what they're speaking of. It's the center of his desires, of his yearnings. And so when the heart is made pure, mark it, by washing of regeneration, uh, when the heart is single in its devotion through repentant faith in Christ, when the pattern of the life is Romans 6, 17, you were slaves of sin, you became, here it is, obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. In other words, you've become redeemed. The Lord has given you a pure heart. There's a new you inside of the unredeemed flesh. A pure heart is one devoted to God with an, here mark, mark it, undivided allegiance because it's been washed and cleansed by Christ. In fact, this type of love is only possible in a very real sense from, from those who are redeemed, according to 1 Peter 1.22. Since you have in obedience, Peter says, to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. You have the ability to love, and that's the response. You can't have a sincere love unless you're redeemed and a love like we described. And if you are redeemed, then you're equipped to do it and then commanded to do it and faithful teaching from the pulpit sets as its goal. And you can say, if the scripture says that is our goal, then the outcome is to be what? Love from a pure heart. And this is what's supposed to be that uh, it's what it's supposed to produce. And that was that fifth principle that we saw. The outcome certainly and, and if you're having discernment, how to know what's being taught correctly, if what's being taught correctly from the pulpit is actually happening, then the goal and, the, and from the positive side, really, the response will be love from a pure heart to those who sit under that teaching. That's what it's supposed to produce. Instead of posturing, instead of gimmicks, instead of inflammatory types of hucksterism and craftiness and luring people in, which has as an outcome confusion and foolishness and anemic Christianity. You don't even know even the basics of, of Christianity and how Christians are supposed to act, kind of picking, choosing what you want, and endless questioning. Instead of that, faithful doctrine produces in the church one of the things that God wants in the church to be the trademark of the church, and that is love from a pure heart, love from a redeemed heart. Now look at that next one from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience. A good conscience. And we looked at this last time. It's something we talk about pretty often here, so you're not unfamiliar with it. But conscience is your God-given self-judging faculty. It's the conversation you can have with yourself when there's a dilemma in your life. And there's some choices that you need to make, and they're moral. And you're trying to figure out what it is that you're supposed to do. The Lord has given that to every individual who's ever lived. And Romans calls it the law of God written on the heart. Even unredeemed people have it. Now, it can be misinformed over time and begin to not work like it should, but everyone is supposed to have a, everyone has a conscience and it's supposed to be a self-judging faculty. It's your inner awareness of the quality of your own actions. That's the idea. The conscience is the law of God written on the heart of everyone who's ever lived. But in order for it to work properly, mark it, it has to be properly informed. And as we're working our way through this, how is it properly informed? By the teaching of sound doctrine from the pulpit. 
That's how it's properly informed. When you stay with the text and you work your way through, then you have God's mind and God's thoughts. And those then become what we begin to take on and become the fabric of our own life. And that was that sixth principle of discernment and how to know what's right from the positive side. Faithful teaching has a goal, as a goal, and we could certainly say outcome, a correctly informed conscience. That's what the proper administration of doctrine is supposed to produce. The ability to properly evaluate a situation and choose the correct course of action because your conscience has been informed by sound doctrine. You see how important this is, Paul? This is a non-negotiable for the Apostle Paul. What's been going on up until now in Ephesus uh, is, is moving the church away so that the outcome will not be these things. It won't be love from a pure heart, and it's not going to be a sound, a good conscience, a conscience that's properly informed. And we see this in our culture today all the time, don't we? We have Christianity that's a mile wide and an inch deep and have no discernment whatsoever in the basic morality of life. Choosing constantly what the Bible clearly teaches is wrong. But how would they know? Because from the pulpit, they never read the Bible or read it just marginally if it's somehow going to help to proof text something that the pastor wants to say. See, So we move away from all that and then the outcome is not going to be the things that are the most important. So I think Paul takes this pause here for good reason. Paul wants sound doctrine taught so the church doesn't end up like false teachers. False teachers in 1 Timothy 4.2 have, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Faithful teaching equips the church to avoid hypocritical living. That's the idea. We want to avoid hypocritical living, don't we? We don't want to say we're a believer and then go out and just prove by our actions that it doesn't appear that we are. That's the last thing we want to do. And so we don't want to have this open door of a seared conscience. Whatever it is, it's fine. See, no way to discern the proper conduct. Now look at the third goal of sound doctrine. Look at 1 Timothy 1.5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. We understand that. A good conscience, and here it is, a sincere faith. Three significant adjectives, I think, as we've looked through there, attached to important biblical concepts. Pure heart, good conscience, and here it is, sincere faith. On a blistering hot day, family had guests over for dinner. Mom asked the four-year-old son to give thanks for the dinner. The son says um, to his mom, but I don't know what to say. So his mom says, oh, just say what you hear me say. So obediently, he bows his head and mumbled, Oh, Lord, why did I invite these people over on such a hot day like this? In the Scarlet Letter, Nathaniel Hawthorne writes, quote, No man for any considerable period can wear one face to himself and another to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which may be the true. Unquote. That's important, isn't it? And that describes a lot of people. They wear one face in one place, and they wear one face in another place, and nobody's sure, even the person's sure, which one's the right one. So what's sincere mean anyway? Obviously, not what we just saw in our illustrations. Our adjective, anapokritos, it starts with a negative particle. So the root of the word in verb form has to do with impersonating someone. 
especially as it applies to a stage production, playing a part. And so with the negative particle, it's not playing a part. That's what we're trying. Sound doctrine makes, gives you the ability to not just play the part, you see? It, it's possible, I think, and it's important, I think, to interpret this as just the simple negative state of hypocrisy. You know, semantically neutral. Just don't be hypocritical. But I don't think that that's really the emphasis the Apostle Paul has, if we know him at all. Uh, there seems to be, an, I think, an important positive element, and we're going to look at that for a minute. So, classified here as genuine. Be genuine. A faith without hypocrisy. Because you don't have to live very long to recognize that the way some people live really has no relationship whatsoever to their faith that they declare with their lips, right? We, we've all met them, and we've been them. Oh, wait. Well, you've probably gone through times in your life where, and I have, where what you say with your mouth didn't reflect what was going on privately. A sincere faith means a faith that's really there, it's genuine. And that's our seventh principle of discernment and how to know what's right for the positive side. Faithful teaching is going to produce love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and it's going to produce in a goal and certainly as an outcome, a sincere faith. So mark it. Sound teaching will make clear what it looks like to not play the part of the redeemed, but to be redeemed. You see? And this is a topic we've, we've covered extensively over the last several months, and I, if you've been here, you know this. Uh, we taught through 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Do you remember? Examine yourselves and see if you're in the faith. And so we took a Sunday, we just asked a bunch of questions. We gave some common responses for people who would say, yes, I'm redeemed, and they would say, well, I walked in hell, or you know, I feel really good when we, when we worship, or, or any number of things which are not proof of redemption. And we asked a lot of questions. We went through Hebrews chapter 6, which is, it is the passage that deals with duplicious types of living, with people who are just on the outside of the church all the time, and, and uh, they know all the lingo, and they know all the stories, and they, and they can recite them back to you, but they've never been redeemed, and then they get to the point where they decide, I'm not going to do this anymore, and, and the passage says, there's no, there's no more sacrifice left for sin. Why? Because you already know all the answers, and you've decided to reject it. There's no enticing part of Christianity anymore when you get to that point. We saw it more again recently in our, in our opening introduction of 1 Timothy as Paul says, um, our faith, he draws Timothy in, there's a mutual faith, and what a true child of the faith looks like, but I, I'm going to take just a minute, and I'm going to look at it again, just because I don't think we can look at it too much, number one, and number two, I feel like with everything that the world's, and we should always feel this way, but I think the way the world is going, I think it's very likely we'll see the Lord soon. I think those who are redeemed can agree with that. We can see all the, all the things that are in place. And so again, it's just an opportunity to just take a look at where you are. And um, of course, no one can look into your heart any more than you can go into mine and see where I am. But I think asking these questions are important. A sincere faith, what's that look like? Well, I think a good place to start, we haven't started here before, unfeigned faith, if you will, can be found in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Here's the thing, beloved. You, 
you can't play the part of the redeemed and bear spiritual fruit. You can't just play that part and then somehow expect that you're going to bear that fruit. That's not going to happen. You're going to bear a supernatural fruit if you're redeemed, and it's going to mark your life as one with sincere faith. So are they there? Do you see these things in increasing number as you grow older in the faith? Is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, do those things mark your life? Do they take over in a very real sense your life and the way you would normally respond to someone, the way you would normally respond to a situation, the way your self-talk will work? Is it interacting there, those fruit being bore, begin to take the place of the fruit of the flesh? See, that's an important thing, I think. Marking a sincere faith is the fruit of the Spirit. You can't fake that. Number two, marking the life of one with sincere faith will be in obedience to the Word. We say that often, but it is the reason why we teach the Word, isn't it? If we have an admonition or correction, then we're supposed to correct, right? Be corrected and change. 1 John chapter 2, verse 4 says, The one who says, I've come to know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. In other words, if you're redeemed, you're going to be obedient like Jesus, right? What would Jesus do? Well, Jesus would be obedient. That's what he would do, okay? to the revealed Word of God. And so the question is, do you see that in increasing measure in your life? Or is there always an excuse for not obeying? There's all, we run into people like this all the time, don't we, in the church? There's always an excuse for why you didn't do what the revealed Word of God said for you to do. And you always make up an excuse. See, so what's the deal? Is the fruit of the Spirit there in increasing measure? Do you find that the pattern of your life is going to be increasingly obedient as you spend time each day in the Word and you see what it says and what it means by what it says and how it applies. Do you find yourself putting those things on? Does it make your way into your thought? When you read the Bible on a daily basis and you see, don't do this, and you see in your life the Lord makes it clear you've been doing it, and you repent and you say, okay, um, this is not what I'm going to do anymore, and I'm going to make this concerted effort to put away the deeds of the flesh. I'm going to rearrange my life in a certain way. You know, First Thessalonians 4, I'm reminded, it says each man should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. What's that mean? Well, first of all, it implies that you may not be. But secondly, it says that you have the ability to control your own body in sanctification and honor. So is that the, is that the issue? Are you seeing that in increasing measure? And, and, and here's the thing, you know, um, we're still housed in this unredeemed body. So you're going to see things that you don't like, right? I mean, obviously. Romans 7, if it means anything, means that. That we're things that we don't like. When the law comes and Paul says it said, don't covet, that's all I did. And we see that, right? So we understand that. So this is the third one. It, you're going to see things you don't like. So the third uh, one, a life marked uh, one with sincere faith, it will be marked by repentance. It's going to be marked by repentance. It's going to be marked by the fruit of the Spirit in increasing measure. It's going to be marked by obedience to the Word. And then when you see where you've, you've gone astray, then it's marked by repentance. And, and, it, and 1 John 1.6 says very clearly, 
If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. In other words, just like the other one, one who says, I've come to know him and doesn't keep his commandments, the truth is not in him. In other words, you're a fraud, see? You say one thing, but you're not that thing, see? And this, the other one, it says, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. And that's an overlap from number two. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. A continuing cleansing. And then verse 8 says, if we, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And again, the truth is not in us. So you don't think you're that bad of a person. How many have witnessed to someone and said, well, I'm not really that bad of a person. I'm a good person. Right? That's, that's kind of the default remark, mostly, with moral people when you witness to someone. I'm a good person. Really? Uh, well, have you ever stolen anything? Uh, yeah. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Yeah. Have you ever lusted after someone who wasn't your partner? Oh, sure. Well, those are three of God's top ten. I mean, you could have had a top 100, but he gave us ten. In the three of us. Are you good? See, you've got to go through that process. But here's the thing. We understand, as believers, we're redeemed from sinful flesh. That's the only reason you're going to, way you're going to come to Christ, is if you understand you're lost, right? That's why we start with the bad news and we give the good news. And so this part is so great. Verse 9 says, if we confess our sins... He's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word's not in us. Three times in that passage, if you say you don't have sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. See, so we want to obey. We see we don't do it perfectly. And so our life is a pattern of, of repentant faith, isn't it? We come in by repentance. It stays with us all the way through our life. Sure signs of false faith will be an absence of the fruit of the Spirit. Constant excuses for not obeying the clear teaching of the Word of God or minimizing the sinfulness that we have, which is indicated by an absence of daily repentant prayer time. See, that makes its way into your prayer time all the time. See, as you read the Word and then you go pray, you're coming to the Lord in repentance. That, that's, that's a trademark of sincere faith, see. And, and beloved, we're not talking about legalism, and I think it's important to, to make the difference clear. We're not just talking about arranging your life on the outside so it all looks ordered. Matthew 23, verse 25 Jesus is talking to the religious people of the time. He never, he never uh, castigated unredeemed people. He explained the gospel very clearly to them and gave them an opportunity to respond. But people who thought they were righteous, he'd say this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. That's the opposite of what we want to be, right? We, we don't want to have that. Sincere faith is the absence of that. You clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside full of robbery and self-indulgence. It looks good on the outside. Churches are full of people who look good on the outside, but instead they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so the outside may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like a whitewashed tomb, which is outside appears beautiful, but inside full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men. Outward righteousness, that's not what we're talking about but inwardly full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Legalism just makes sure the external moral things are all looking right. But the fruit of the Spirit won't be there. The love of doing what is right won't be there. Just the love of what looks right. A love won't be there. Joy, peace, long-suffering, patience. There's no repentant faith going on because you're always better than everybody else. I'm sure glad I'm not like that person. I'm sure glad my family doesn't do that. I'm sure glad I don't listen to that kind of music. 
I'm sure glad I don't watch that movie. That's an outside righteousness, beloved, okay? That is not equated with sincere faith. It's doing what's right from the heart. You long to do what's right because you want to be pleasing to the Lord. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's number four of sincere faith. There will be a willing, joyful submission to counting the cost. We don't talk about this much because most churches provide an easy-believe type of gospel presentation. God loves you and wants as a good plan for your life. Instead of you're separate and sinful and under a curse and in need of redemption. And so we respond in such a way that Christianity supposedly is going to make your life better. If I understand the Bible in any way possible, Christianity certainly will make for the best possible end of your life and for the reward that comes from living a life of holiness. But on a day-to-day basis, if they persecuted me, Jesus said, they will persecute you. If they hate me, they're going to hate you. But we present the gospel in such a way that's going to make your life better And so people don't understand that sincere faith is about counting the cost. You are bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body, which is the Lord's, right? You were not redeemed by silver and gold from the foolish manner of life of your forefathers, but by the precious blood of Christ slain from the foundation of the world. You are bought. You're owned by the Lord. You belong to him as a believer a synonymous with that term is a bondservant to the Lord Jesus Christ. You used to be a bondservant to sin. Now you're his, see? And that's going to have a lot of expressions, this joyful submission to counting the cost. There's going to be uh, serving and giving and witnessing and considering all the options of what your life is going to, the outcome of your life is going to be and how you're going to live it. In Luke chapter 14, verse 25, now large crowds were going along with him and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. That's not the way, I guess, to start a sermon in modern Christianity, is it? You can't be a Christian unless you prefer Jesus above everything else. That's not going to win you many friends. But that's how Jesus expresses it. Whoever does not carry his own cross can't come after me and be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it, Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So he's just using some illustrations from real life, right? I mean, you don't start building something if you haven't figured out how much it's going to cost and how long it's going to take and what, it's going to, what, what has to happen for that to be completed. That's the illustration of Christianity, see? It's counting the cost. What's this going to take? Everything. What part of my life is going to be his? All of it. That's sincere faith, see? Well, what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men 
to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace so that none of you can be my disciple who does not give up his own possessions, right? You've got a king coming, and he's got a massively superior force. You're going to have to give up a lot. What? Everything. Subservient. The Lord's going to come. He's got a massively superior, superior force. In fact, he's in charge of all of it. He calls all of us into account, and that's part of understanding when you come to faith. You don't belong to yourself anymore, see? You give all you have if need be, and that's the opposite, of course, what false teachers try to do and teach. They normally want it all, and they want you to have it all. See, that's very attractive, isn't it? I want you to have it all, right? Serve God, and he's going to bless your socks off. You'll have everything you need. Well, yeah, he will provide all your needs according to his riches in Jesus. And he knows that you need clothes and housing and things like that. And he, but the world pursues those things, but you seek first what? The kingdom of righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The Lord takes care of those things. He knows that you need them, see? But sincere faith expresses itself in a joyful submission of counting the cost. None of you can be my disciple who does not give up his own possession. None of it belongs to you anymore, including your own life. You give all you have if need be. That's the opposite of what false teachers tell you. So unfeigned faith makes whatever sacrifice is necessary because nothing, nothing is as valuable as being a disciple of Jesus. That's the whole point of, of the buried treasure, isn't it? It's the whole point of the pearl of great price. I mean, it's not just marginal teaching. Christianity looks like this. Sincere faith has this as its understanding. Mark it. You're willing to follow him and do whatever he asks. And that, beloved, is the longing of your heart. It's not so it looks good on the outside. That's the longing of your heart. And you may not do it perfectly, but it's your intense desire. And more so as you know him longer. The longer you're in the faith, the more you want to make sure that it all belongs to him. See, And lastly for today, sincere faith is a faith which is marked by love. And that throws us back on the early part of the verse, doesn't love from a pure heart. Love of the word, love of the church, love for God's people. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. I know we talked about it because it's part of the outcome of sound teaching. But I think it's also, I think it's important to understand that the absence of love for the brethren indicates you probably have a hypocritical faith, no faith at all. See, the church is the most diverse group on the planet. There's no more diverse group than the church, and we're required to love one another. There are people here you wouldn't even be friends with, let alone love, right? Because there's so much difference between us. And yet we're, our response, and we're supposed to be marked by a sincere love for the brethren which is action, isn't it? Not just I feel warm and fuzzy about, you know, whoever. No, that has nothing to do with it, actually. Love of action. Acts of kindness, gentleness, provision. And in fact, a genuine nature of faith and love in the life of the believer, it's, it's connected multiple times in the pastoral letters. I'll just give you a quick summary as we move into our time around the uh, table. First Timothy 1.14, what's it say? The grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Jesus models faith and love. They go together. Sincere faith and love are together. First Timothy 2.15, women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Women are, 
are, and we looked at this on Mother's Day, women are spared from the stigma of first, uh, the first one to fall if they bear children, raise children who continue in faith, love, and sanctity with self-restraint. Uh, first Timothy 4.12, let no one look down on your youthfulness, he says to Timothy, but rather in speech and conduct, here it is, love and faith and purity, show yourself to be an example of those who believe. You want a sincere faith? That has to be part of it. But flee from those things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. 2 Timothy 1.13, retain the standard of sound words which you've heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. It's just over and over again. Sincere faith is going to produce love. It's always part and parcel with it. 2 Timothy 2.22, now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. 2 Timothy 3.10, now you who followed my teaching conduct purpose, faith, patience, love, and perseverance. Titus 2.2, 2. older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. It's just all over the place. It's just the nature of sincere faith. It's not trying to produce some work in front of somebody so they think, wow, they really love the brethren. It's just actual, behind the scenes, under the radar, making sure that people know that you love them and you're meeting needs and you're doing those kinds of things. That's part of sincere faith, see, along with all the rest of them. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. It's just, that's just so heartwarming, isn't it? I mean, this is, this, if we want to sum up what we want to get out of church, this is it, right? I mean, if we want to be real about this, this is the product of the time we spend in church. This is the product you want to see in your, in your students around you. I mean, as they sit under sound teaching, you want to see these types of things that are clear. You, that's how you're going to know there's a sincere faith there. You see the other things in play marked by love and counting the cost, bearing spiritual fruit, and obedience to the word, and marked by repentance. I mean, these are, these are things that indicate a sincere faith is there. And what better way to indicate those things than to close our time together with the Lord's table? Sound doctrine helps us love God more because we learn more about Him, we love Him more, right? I mean, ignorance of God, and you may be ignorant of, of, of the, a lot of the truths of God, but the more you find out about it, if you really love Him, you're going to love Him more because you know more about Him. And our expression, of course, of appreciation and thankfulness and love to God is never greater than around the gift of Christ on the cross, right? We, we praise Him for a lot of things. We praise Him most for that, don't we? And so we're going to do that right now. And a sincere faith is a mark of, of uh, has as a mark repentance, and that's what we come to do now. So let's bow, if you would, with me as we um, prepare to go to the Lord's table. Just take a few minutes, but I want to make sure we're prepared as we do it. And I think as we come to the end of a message like this, if we're not prepared by now, we probably won't be, right? Because uh, we understand what the Lord expects. So let's pray.